We have quite a raft of people becoming members today. So I'd like to invite Tom and Camille Glass, if you'll come forward, and Janice Simmons, if you'll come forward, uh, Teresa McCrary, um, Shane and Jamie Ryan, if you'll come forward, and Nathan Berlin, if you'll come forward, and the elders that are here. And we'd like to uh, read this charge. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God and without hope for salvation except that is offered in Jesus Christ? And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? And do you, do you now receive and depend on Him alone for your salvation as it is offered in the Gospels? And do you now promise to resolve in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live lives as become the followers of Jesus Christ? And do you promise to serve Christ in this church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and its ministry to others to the best of your abilities? And do you submit yourself to the government and to the discipline of this church and to the spiritual oversight of the elders? And do you promise to promote the unity, the purity, and the peace of this church? Now let's pray. Our Father God, it is a great delight for us to join together, and not just as brothers and sisters in Christ, but those who identify as, with this church as being our family, our body, this expression of your bride. And we pray for your blessing on each one of these. We pray that as we labor together to serve you, that your Holy Spirit will be upon us and work through us, and we can work together with you um, to bring glory to the name of Christ Jesus and to bring honor to his kingdom. Father, we ask your blessing on each one of those, and we welcome them now into membership into this church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, We appreciate it. Well, would you uh, join me one more time for a moment of prayer? Father, we thank you again for this time that we can gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus, to bring you praise, to express our love for you and our love for one another. And now we invite you to speak to our hearts by the agency of your word proclaimed, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would superintend the proclamation of the word and the listening of these words. Um, help us to hear what your spirit has to say to weigh our hearts and as necessary to change them as good stewards of your word. Help us to check very carefully if what we hear today is truly your word for us or just the idle babblings of an insane man. But if these are your words, let them change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by thanking you all for taking for providing Connie and I with a 10-day study tour of Scotland that we just got back from. We had the privilege of being with just the two of us with the guide and his wife who was the driver. So we got to see a lot of the sites that are off the tourist track. The point of our study tour was to look at the Scottish Reformation and the National Covenant of Scotland. And so I'll give you a little bit of background. By the 1500s, 
the Catholic Church was controlling a lot of the politics throughout Europe. They'd become very powerful. There was a lot of serious doctrinal error. The church had become very wealthy and very corrupt as um, civil government in the church tends to corrupt its leaders. Um, this led to a number of uh, pastors calling for reform, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Reformation. It began with Martin Luther in 1517, posting his famous uh, 95 thesis on the chapel door at Wittenberg. So they were just debate topics to, to question how the church can be reformed. He wasn't trying to start a new church. He was trying to reform the church that existed. Now, if you've been here a while, you may remember that I posted 95 Reese's on our church door on Halloween because Reformation Sunday is the first Sunday of November, but very few people got that. But that's what it was all about. The 95 Reese's are what the Reformation was all about. Um, uh, the church leaders were also protesting some of the uh, things that were done in the church, and that's why we call ourselves Protestants to this day, that were protesting the, uh, the powerful corrupt church and that needed to be corrected from its doctrinal errors. Then in 1530, uh, John Calvin became a Protestant and separated from the, from the Catholic Church. Then in 1536, you may remember that Henry VIII, if you've been along, if, you were probably there, weren't you, Bill? And, <laughs> King, King Henry wanted to get divorced and the Pope wouldn't let him, so he split from the Catholic Church and King Henry VIII formed himself as the head of the English Church, became the Anglican Church. And uh, 1538, um, John Knox, and this is the, where we come circle back to the Scottish Reformation, John Knox, a Scottish uh, reformer, um, became an influential voice in leading the church away from the era where the king had set himself up as the head of the church. And John Knox basically said, no king can be the head of Christ's church. Only Christ is king or head of his church. And any king, any person, no matter how great they are, is only a sinner equal footing with the rest of us when it comes to the church. At that time, Mary, Queen of Scots, who had been, uh, uh, was a Catholic, had grown up in Catholic France, was ruling in France, or excuse me, in Scotland, and she took exception to John Knox saying no uh, king, or in this case queen, could be the head of the church. She assumed that uh, as queen she had absolute power over not only the, the government, but also of the, the minds of the people, and she could demand all of the people to be Catholic if she wanted to, and she resented deeply John Knox saying that we are not bound to the, the religion of a, of a sovereign because uh, only God can, can be the head of his church. And for his efforts, John Knox was rigorously persecuted. He was arrested and sentenced to be a galley slave, and I don't mean cooking in the kitchen, I mean rowing with the oars for 19 months on a French ship. Now when he was released, he uh, drafted and signed the Scottish Confession of Faith in uh, 1560. And again, basically, it said that Jesus Christ is the only head of the Kirk, Kirk being church. Uh, in an interview with Mary, um, she was furious with him because she believed he was wrongly teaching a religion which their princes did not allow. 
She said, how can, you, how can the doctrine be of God seeing that God commands subjects to obey their princes? And she's referring to the text that we're looking at today, which is why you're getting this long introduction about the Scottish Reformation. Because she believed that the sovereigns had the right to control the minds, not only the lives of, their, of the people that were under her. And Knox answered her, Madam, as right religion took neither its origin nor its authority from worldly princes, but from the eternal God alone, so are not subjects bound to frame their religions according to the appetites of their princes. You get the drift of what, she's, what he's saying. He said, God commands queens to be nurses unto his people. She responded, yes, but you are not the church that I will to nourish. Knox replied, your will, madam, is no reason. And so there was this conflict between Knox and, and Queen Mary, and we'll come back to this in a minute. So a little while later, 1638, the Scottish National Covenant was signed, which basically said the same thing, that no king can be head of the church, only Christ can be head of the church. And those covenanters were rigorously persecuted by the Catholic authorities. And that's the whole point of the study that Connie and I just got back from. We were looking at the National Covenant of Scotland and the Scottish Reformation. But it brings to our mind an essential question, and that is, what is the role, in fact, of the state over the church? What authority does the state have over the Christian church? How is, does the Christian church relate to the state? How are Christian people to relate to the governments that they are under? These are the questions that form the background as we begin to study Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. These seven verses that we're going to look at today present us with the clearest, most specific uh, New Testament teaching on the Christian's responsibility to civic authority. And, and the point is that every Christian, no matter what government he lives under, is commanded by the Lord to maintain a proper and useful submission to that government for the sake of leading a peaceful life and having an effective witness. And so we have this reoccurring theme of submission to governmental authority and it's dealt with forcefully in the text that we are looking at today. Now, if you remember the first uh, 11 chapters of Romans, and particularly the first eight chapters, explain in great detail what it means for a person to be saved, that we are justified by God's grace working through faith. And it can be summed up, uh, turning back to chapter 3, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifested being witnessed by the law and to the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's a summation of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Then we go from this uh, miracle of salvation to the application, how does this amazing doctrine of salvation through faith affect the way the Christian is to live. So we began looking in Romans chapter 12 of the application. How does that look, what does that look like in the Christian's life? And in verse 1 of chapter 12, we're told that our responsibility before God is to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, 
which is our spiritual act of worship. We move quickly from how we are to respond to God in chapter 12, verse 1, to how we are to respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we behave in the church? How do we love one another? It moves on from there to how do we respond to other people, those, even those people who persecute us. Now, in the beginning of, ver of chapter 13, have, having dealt with those matters, now the focus is, what is our responsibility to those in civic authority over us? What's our right relationship as Christians to human government that we live in? And that brings us now to our text, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So Paul begins with a very broad statement. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authority. He says everyone, it literally means every soul. He's not talking about Christians alone. He's talking about everyone. Every human being is to be subject to the governing authorities. And why is that? Well, the answer is not, at least at this point in the text, it's not because you're gonna get into trouble if you don't. And it's not that by obeying the governing authorities you'll have social order and meaning to society. Those are good arguments, and he's going to get to them later, but that's not the argument he's presenting right now in the text. He says that um, we should, every soul should submit to the government because, uh, verse 1b, there's no authority except that which God has established, and the authorities that exist have been established by God. Look, the starting point for why we should obey our governing leaders is the sovereignty of God, because God is ultimately in charge. That's where Paul begins this argument. Therefore, whoever is exercising authority is doing so by God's gracious command or appointment. That's very hard for us to understand because, um, well, for one thing, Paul is writing during the time of a, of a, of a terrible persecution under Nero, and he's writing to the Roman Christians who are being subjected to the persecution from the, a Roman leader. And it's easy for us to say, well, God is sovereign and in control when, when God gives us the leaders that we like. And when God gives us a, a, a leader who is moral or a Christian, we say, well, of course, God has appointed this person because God is ultimately sovereign. But the point Paul is making is, even those leaders that we don't like, even those, those uh, autocratic leaders are also appointed by God. Even the leaders that you didn't vote for, that you don't like, are there by the appointment of God. 
And because they are the legitimate authorities, we need to be submitted to them, not in an unlimited manner, but in a way that we are responsible to obey them. MacArthur says, believers are to be model citizens, known as model citizens, known as law-abiding, not rabble-rousing, obedient rather than rebellious, respectful of government rather than demeaning of it. We must speak against sin, against injustice, against immorality and ungodliness with fearless dedication, but we must do so within the framework of civil law and with respect for civil authorities. We are to be a godly society, doing good, living peacefully within an ungodly society, manifesting our transformed lives so that the saving power of God is seen clearly. Paul gives no qualification or condition. Every civil authority is to be submitted to willingly. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul teaches that the uh, that all treat, entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all goodness and good, goodliness and dignity. Again, without any exception made to the ruler's competence or incompetence, morality or immorality, cruelty or kindness, godliness or ungodliness, he gives the same instruction in his letter to Titus to whom he wrote, remind them, he's talking about the believers under Titus's care, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Paul admonishes the Thessalonian Christians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your business and work with your hands just as we have commanded you, so that you may behave properly towards the outsiders and may not be in need. The whole principle of civil obedience we see throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. We see Daniel exhorting the, the, the Jewish people living in a pagan Babylon, the overlords of his people. He, he, he commands them to seek the welfare of the city where you have been sent into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. So regardless of the failures of government, many of them are immoral, unjust, ungodly. Christians are to pray for their governing rulers and they are to submit to their authority. They are to be examples of, of godliness, not rebellion. Like the, the Old Testament prophets, you know, we have, we have a right, we have an obligation to confront, to oppose sin with evils in society, but we're to do so in the Lord's way and with the Lord's power, not through uh, defiance and rebellion. And in this way, Paul says that we live a life which is good and profitable for all men because it shows the power of God and salvation and that people will see what a Christian looks like. Now, Paul explains why a believer needs to submit to authority under ordinary circumstances. He says, first of all, that we should submit to authority that, got, that exists because they've been instituted by God. The word instituted here is in the imperfect tense. It's uh, saying that God has appointed these, these different leaders. Now, the first consequence, then, of God's sovereignty over nations is that we submit to the authority that we are under. Now, that's very difficult for us primarily because we're Americans. We don't like the idea of submission to any authority, especially those that we did not vote for. 
We do not like any laws that rub us the wrong way, especially if we didn't vote for them. But here Paul teaches the, the disciples and us that we are to respect the office, we are to respect God's appointment, we are to pray for our civic leaders, even if they are dirtbags. <laughs> he commands submission in, in every age. Now, the, the word submission to us rubs us the wrong way. It's just very repugnant to the American culture because we associate submission with words like defeat or uh, discouragement or, or domination, uh, humiliation. But it, that's, it's not a negative term in the Bible. Submission recognizes that God has appointed a hierarchy and authority with himself at the top. You think God has the right to be the top authority? And we recognize that he has placed authorities, and so we willingly place ourselves under them. That's the whole idea of submission. We submit to the authorities placed over us because we recognize they have the right to rule. They have the right to give orders. Of course, no single passage can present this complex subject um, thoroughly, but Paul is still reminding us we need to be submissive to authorities and obedient, and that's what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.13, excuse me, 1 Peter 2.13, um, be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution. Uh, that's similar to what Jesus taught, remember in uh, John chapter 5, um, Jesus says, um, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto the Lord the things that are the Lord's. So he's recognizing that, uh, that we need to submit ourselves to authority. But, dot, 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 does that mean we always have to obey the authorities? I mean, if we're to subject ourselves to authority, and Paul's made a very strong and clear case for that, must we always obey the civil magistrate? Again, case in point, um, Peter was out preaching and the Sanhedrin arrested him and told him, stop doing that, stop talking about Jesus, and said, we're going to beat the tar out of you, stop doing it, and they went out and preached anyway, and they, the Sanhedrin brought them back to court and said, we told you, we gave you very strict orders, we gave you a command, stop preaching, and what does Peter say? We have to obey God rather than men. So there's a conflict that has arisen in Peter's case between the civil authorities, the civic authorities, telling him to not preach the gospel, and he has a direct command from Jesus to go out and preach the gospel. The point is, the principle is, that you should always obey the civic government unless they tell you to do something which God forbids or forbids something which God commands. And in those cases, not only may you disobey the civic government, you must. Because we have a higher authority that we must always answer to. We, we must disobey if the civic government requires us to do something which God clearly forbids. Of course, history is replete with examples of times when government has ordered people to do something which is sinful. Uh, case in point, the book of Esther. Book of Esther is written at a time in Persia where there was a command, go out and murder all the Jews. So the civic authority is commanding something which God clearly says is wrong. And then 
Nazi Germany at the beginning of World War II, where the government is commanding the, the extinction of the, of the Jews among other gr people groups, or uh, Cambodia under Pol Pot, or uh, Rwanda in 1994. There's instances where the government will marginalize a certain people group and then legitimize the extinction of that people group. And you know what? It's happening in America today. We are not, however, free to disobey the civil authority anytime we just simply disagree with it or the authorities are making us suffer or we find obedience to them massively inconvenient. Again, isn't it ironic that this text is written at a time when the Christians are facing persecution under Nero and this feeling the heavy hand of imperial Rome? Paul then goes on to give us the theological basis for this command. And the theological basis is, for there is no authority except from God. See, ultimately, there is only one being who possesses authority. There's only one being who has intrinsic authority. All other authority is extrinsic. It derives from the one true source of authority. You won't argue with this, but I'm just making the point. Because God has created us, He intrinsically has authority. He has command over us because it is He who has made us and not we ourselves. He created and He has the right to demand from His creatures whatever he wants to, right? He has that authority. All other authority then derives from or is delegated authority from that one ultimate inherent authority. God alone has that authority. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that obedience to these subject authorities can't be taken lightly as we are so often inclined to do. And as far as Romans 13.1 is concerned, now, this is a very broad, all-encompassing, absolute, ultimately unqualified statement where Paul says everyone, every soul, every creature must be subject himself to the governing authorities. Again, we realize, of course, that there can be conflicting demands for what is the ultimate authority. There can be legitimate and illegitimate authority. You know, for instance, uh, a guy with a gun has authority. He can command you to do something, but you don't have to obey him because his authority is illegitimate. And we have to wait then for the legitimate authority to come deal with the illegitimate authority. That was a big problem during the, the Revolutionary War. At, at, at first, it was a question of, does England have the right to impose these rules on us? And so there was rebellion against that. And at first, a lot of the Christians were saying, we have to submit to the, the governing authority that God has placed under us, or uh, us under. But it wasn't long before there was a question of, well, now which government is the legitimate government that we need to be following? Do you see what I'm saying? There is such a thing as illegitimate authority and legitimate authority. And Paul is telling us we have to obey legitimate authority because God has placed that authority over us. And we can... We, if, we, if we disobey the state, we are then, therefore, disobeying God. And if we disobey the state, God will then punish us. If we disobey the state, the state may then punish us. Verse 2, 
He who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. I hate to bring this up because I hate to stir up the, I hate to stir up the silt in the bottom of the fishbowl, but there's a, a perfect example of this Christian submission to civic authority that our church has just painfully trodden through over the last several years, and that has to do with the COVID-19 mask mandates. You know, I hate to bring it up, but it's a perfect illustration here that. Uh, that Christians are required to obey the civic government unless the government requ requires us to do something which God forbids or the government uh, forbids something which God requires, with, with that caveat. So there was an issue here, you know, beginning with, does the government have the right to tell its citizens they have to wear masks? And as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, and not of the worldly kingdom, are Christians obligated to do what the government requires us to do? The government and the medical authorities were saying that the COVID virus spread through water droplets, then it could be transmitted through speaking or sneezing or whatever, and so we were required to wear masks that covered our mouth and our nose to mitigate the spreading of germs. Must the Christian comply with the government asking us to do something which really isn't government-related. So some Christians were objecting, saying that, that the, uh, one, that the government was not authorized to make such a requirement of us, questioning whether or not masks actually did anything valuable, whether they were proved safe and effective, and whether or not the government was overstepping its authority asking us to do that. And if we complied with that, if we acquiesced to an unreasonable demand of government overstepping its authority, weren't we encouraging the government to take further steps in controlling us? And at some point, don't we have to stand up and say enough is enough? And everybody's waving the banner from Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where Peter says, now judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you, but we have to obey the Lord. It's, is that the same thing? Is that a legitimate application of that text? Is, I mean, it's fair to debate whether or not masks are effective, and it's fair to question whether the government has the right to exercise that kind of authority, but using that text actually is a misapplication because wearing masks has nothing to do with sharing the gospel or spreading the gospel. So right or wrong, that's not the right text to use. It's a misapplication of scripture here because mask wearing has nothing to do with the spread of the gospel. Again, Christians should voice their objections they, if they're inappropriate. We should, we should stand up against laws which are unfair or wrong, and we should do so under the way that we've been provided for. We, you, this church actually engaged in, in lobbying for a change and creating petitions and garnering support for a, a, an alternate position. Uh, we're not blind sheep that just follow whatever the government tells us to do. But wearing a mask was not a moral mandate. It has nothing to do with morality. It, it's wearing a mask in and of itself is, is not a, a, a sinful issue. It's, it may be unnecessary, it may be a, a foolish gesture, but it's not requiring us to do something which God forbids or vice versa. Now, a second reason that Christians should follow 
local ordinances as it applied to the mask mandate was for the sake of our testimony. Christians ought to be seen not only among other Christians, but among the outside world as those that are considerate of other people who recognize that we are not the best thing that ever happened to this world. And we're treating other people with consideration as more important than ourselves. That we are ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom. And we should be the very first ones to voluntarily lay aside our rights, our privileges, for the sake of how it represents our king. Right or wrong, remember at the height of the pandemic, people were, were uh, convinced by the media and by their peers that this was a terrible epidemic and you've already got one foot in the grave. And it, it, it spurned that kind of of, of mindless fear and that kind of out-of-control fear changed the world. But that is not something that Christians should be engaged in because we're told in 2 Timothy 2.17 that fear is not of God. That Christians should lead the way in a panic-stricken world of, of, being, of recognizing that we serve a God who is always in control, who is sovereign. Things are not out of His hands even when it appears everything else is out of control. However, just because that fear is unfounded or at least the level of fear is unwarranted, Christians have no right to be dismissive of those who are fearful. We need to be considerate of other people who are still wrestling with anxiety. And that brings me to my third reason that we should obey the government requirements like the mask mandate creates an a, a example for us, um, and that is for the sake of the weak. You know, Paul gave us the instructions that, uh, that we are not to offend those who are weak. Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom. Brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for flesh, but, but through love serve one another. You know, if, if wearing a mask gives somebody a level of comfort, somebody who's gripped with fear, some people had really legitimate reasons to be fearful of catching COVID. You had a respiratory problem or your comorbidities of, of some kind. We should, out of love and concern and compassion and care for one another, have willingly worn a mask um, for, for their benefit. A prime example, a great text for this, really would have been 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, this, this is not really dealing with masks. This was dealing with meat that's being sacrificed to, to idols. But the principle there applies. And we are a people of principle. We make our decisions based on godly principles. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 8, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. If a Christian offends an unbeliever or offends someone who is weak in the faith by rebelling, by standing up against a, a mask mandate, we are the ones who have erred. We are the ones who have grieved the Holy Spirit. It's a very serious offense to God when we carelessly offend someone, a, a non-Christian or a weaker brother, because we're flaunting our own liberties in Christ. It's ironic to me that the only ones who are truly offended by wearing a mask were those who were told that they, want, that they had to wear a mask and they didn't want to. Let that one sink in for a while. Anyway, 
Moving on with our text. I'm building a principle. I'm not preaching about masks. Verse 3. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, has, who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain. He's God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. See, the whole point of civic government, the whole point of national government, is to make legislation and then enforce the legislation that they've made. Government has the right to exercise force to make you do what it wants you to do. So that's another place where we balk. We don't like being coerced, being forced to do. We'll, we'll do things by, by our voluntary, but we don't like to be forced. However, this is the essence of government power and authority, the ability to force compliance. You, you want an example of that? Every year you get a letter from the IRS and they are not suggesting that you send your money into them. <laughs> they are requiring you and if you decide, I don't want to, I don't have to, I'm a child of another kingdom, they will have the authority to send the entire arsenal of the US armed forces to your door and using everything at their disposal to force you to comply. That is the essence of government. Paul is saying here that even a government which is a lousy government is better than no government because no government leads to corruption and anarchy, to unrestrained evil going forth. You may remember back in 1994 in Rwanda, they had a dictator who had assumed power violently, and he was totally corrupt. Every time he got elected, it was the first year, it was by 97.98%. The next year, he got elected by a higher margin, 98 point something percent. So this guy, he's on the level of, uh, of Kim Jong-un or his dad, Kim Jong-il. That's, that's how dastardly this dictator is. A juvenile Javier, no, I'm not gonna work here anymore. Anyway, uh, he, here, here's this guy who's a total totalitarian dictator of his country. He is a Hutu. There's two major tribes in Rwanda, the, the Hutu and the Tutsis. He's a Hutu, and he gets assassinated. Somebody blows up the plane that he's flying in. They suspect his pilot, who was a Tutsi, had something to do with it. So the dominant people group, the Hutus, start this massive, unrestrained genocide, killing all of their rival tribal people, the Tutsis. About a million people were killed just for belonging to the Tutsi tribe by the government, by the Hutu government, and nobody resisted it. Why? Because there was no government. Paul is saying even bad government is better than no government. That's whole, the whole point here is that order in society is good. And it is particularly good for Christians because it gives us the opportunity to advance the gospel. Uh, verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Here's an, another factor brought in. 
For it's because of this that you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed him, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Again, we're not to submit just because we're afraid of the law or we're afraid of law enforcement. We are rather to submit to the authorities over us as a matter of conscience. That's what Paul says here. If the magistrates are oppressive, if, they're, if we radically disagree with them, we are still to render obedience because our conscience is held captive to the Word of God. So since the authorities are rulers that God has placed over us, we are to render obedience as a matter of principle, unless, of course, they require us to do something which God forbids or forbid us from doing something which God um, commands. So that we, we as Christians are living by principle, by, by ethics. We're not just doing whatever our hearts desire. Um, we are to be seen as a submissive people ultimately to the law of God, but then we are submissive to the law that God has placed us under. So Paul is telling us to be obedient to secular authorities because it matters. It matters to God, and we should be careful to obey it. If, if you take obedience to the laws of the country lightly, if you say, well, those, those laws are stupid. I don't have to obey them because it's a stupid law. Or if you say, I don't have to obey that because I didn't vote for that law or I voted against that law. I didn't write that law. It's not my law. He's not my president. Then you are rebelling against God. You are contributing, and this is the scary part, you are contributing to a spirit of lawlessness that ultimately leads to anarchy and will lead to the loss of civil liberties and to a dictatorial government. On the other hand, if you obey the laws of the land, you are contributing to a society which helps to build a stable, healthy, law-abiding respecting society that God can bless and that the, the gospel can flourish in. While we were on that Reformation tour, I got the privilege of uh, seeing the birthplace of John Knox, seeing the places where he ministered. Um, I got to go to the place where he was arrested, saw the place where he was buried. Curiously, it's right next to the biggest church in Edinburgh, and they don't know where his grave is because somebody paved over it and put a parking lot right over the top of his grave. <laughs> I got to stand in John Knox's pulpit at St. Andrews. John Knox is an inspiration not just to the Scottish people, but being the founder of the Presbyterian Church, and he's still the voice for countercultural Christianity. More than anything else, though, John Knox was known as a man of amazing prayer. And John Knox's famous prayer was, Give me Scotland or I die. And it sounds like something a revolutionary soldier might say, but he's not being arrogant in the demand. What he's giving is this, this passionate plea. You know, God, help me to win Scotland to Christ, you know, or, or let me die for the sake of preaching this pure uh, gospel for the salvation of his countrymen. And John Knox's greatness really lay in how humble he was and how he recognized that God is sovereign over all affairs. He said that one man standing with God is a majority. During this time, let's go circle back to Mary, Queen of Scots, the Catholic who was opposed to John Knox. She said, 
I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Wouldn't it be great if our prayers were that powerful and effective? John Knox preached and he prayed to the end that God would rescue Scotland and God did amazing things in Scotland. They went from some of the most uneducated, illiterate people in the world to the best educated, most literate, and most knowledgeable in scripture in the world during that time. Let's hope and let's pray that God will raise up such men in our country too. Let's pray. I don't mean to offend, Father, and I don't mean to stir up contention or create fresh wounds that have not fully healed, but it is a perfect example of how we as Christians are called to be obedient even when we disagree strongly, not for the sake of demanding our own rights and freedoms, but for declaring that as Christians we serve a great God and we respect the authorities over us and we submit to them for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the name of Christ Jesus and to live out what we are commanded over and over to, to do and that is to lay down our rights for others. Father, I pray stir in our hearts and again help us to examine the scripture to see if what we heard today was true or not. If it's true, then let it have its effect in changing how we think and how we live and the reputation that this church has in this community. And I ask that you would do this for the sake of your church, for the sake of the name of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.